Good morning. It's good to be back again together in the house of worship. And as Joel was saying in his prayer, we're in the battle for our minds. I want to begin with a question this morning, and it's this, how safe do you feel? Do you feel safe? Our world is all about safety in our time, isn't it? Safety and security and protection in the physical sense. A lot of time, energy, resources are poured into making sure we live safe lives. As a matter of fact, this last week, every fire alarm in this building was replaced because that was mandatory for to stay up to code, I guess. I remember back when the days, in the days when safety was a different matter, it was not as strict as it is now. I remember when car seats were not a thing. When cars didn't have airbags. When nobody wore seat belts. I remember when playgrounds were very much, uh, very much um, <clears throat> simple. There was not a whole lot of stuff on the playground to be worried about and so on. Today it's increasing and increasing. And I, I want to be, be upfront. I'm not saying that any of this is bad or is wrong, that we shouldn't have it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking safety. We do want to be safe. I want to be safe. Everybody should, should want to be safe. But there's a different kind of safety I want to talk a little bit about and then before I get into the, uh, the core of our sermon this morning. And that's how safety is being recklessly removed from our culture. Especially in the moral sense, in, the, in the, what Joe was praying about in our minds. Safety is being removed in alarming ways. Think of it. How concerned are we what we put into our brains and our hearts and our souls. How concerned are we what we expose ourselves to and engage ourselves in? There seems to be fewer and fewer safety barriers when it comes to guarding our hearts and minds against destructive habits, substance, entertainment, anything. We live in a world where people are very afraid of the physical dangers that we face and Maybe there's some benefit there, but there seems to be very little concern or very little uneasiness about what's going on morally, on social media, on the classroom, on the screens, and so on. That's very toxic, but there seems to be a lack of seriousness or concern about it. Just think, if the food quality in our grocery stores was parallel to the social media stuff on the, on the screen, we would stop eating. Our society is a very permissive, promiscuous society. We see this going on around us, and it's not the first time this has happened. In fact, it's happened at other times as well. In Jesus' time, it was the case as well. Joe read uh, out of Isaiah, the warning that God gave his people back then. Corruption, immorality has always existed, as it did then, it does now. And Jesus warned about it. Jesus had all kinds of warnings. The sermon title this morning is Called to the Narrow Path, where we keep in mind the boundaries and restrictions God has put in place that we need to abide by, because if we don't, there are consequences for that. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, let's read that. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus says. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by, by it are many on the wide road. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it 
are few. Jesus is calling the people of his time and for us today as well to a life of discernment, discipline, self-discipline, loyalty, and commitment to him. He's calling us to take the less popular path. He's calling us to take the narrow path to a life of dedication, sacrifice, and surrender to him. All because he has saved us. That's the way of the gospel. Luke chapter 13, verse 23, the writer wrote this. He said, And someone said to him, meaning Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. These are hard verses. Salvation is a gift. We cannot earn it. But a gift that's not received is not a gift. If I give you $100 and you reject it, then it's not a gift. Then it does nothing for you. Or if you're given it and you waste it or abuse it, then it doesn't do you any good either. We cannot earn salvation. Oh, a lot of people would want to be saved and be saved on the wide road. Those two don't mix. So if we reject the offer of salvation, then we are lost. And there are many who would like to do it on their terms as it were. That happened in Jesus' day as well. They wanted to follow Jesus as long as they could do it conveniently on their terms. They didn't want salvation with a cross. They wanted salvation with ease and convenience, something that was suitable to them. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too, as it were. And that falls apart. You see, people will not get to heaven by accident or just one way, one day discover, oops, I guess I ended up in heaven after all. That's not how it works. Salvation is a gift that God has provided for us, which we receive and follow along on the narrow path. The temptation always is to lighten up, go with the flow, take it easy, don't be so serious, deal with it later. Today we're finishing our four-part series on characters in the Bible to take warning from. We've heard in the past of different characters in Scripture, how they caused themselves much heartache and grief, and also their loved ones, simply because they refused God's paths. Today we're in our final sermon on this, on this series on characters to take warning from. We want to look at a man named Eli. Many of you know the story of Eli. He was a man who compromised. He refused to take a stand against better knowledge. He was rebuked and he was warned, and yet he refused. He refused to draw a line against sin. In the end, he suffered catastrophically. It's not wise to play loose and fast with the moral warnings of Scripture. God has throughout history sent his prophets to warn his people, Old Testament, New Testament, even in our time. It's important that the church of Jesus Christ pays attention. This man, Eli, he was a judge in Israel. Where we pick up the story, he was an old man. He was a spiritually weak leader, and he was a weak father. The story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 4, and as we go through the story this morning, I won't read all of it. I'll read certain portions of it to get the the gist of the story, but I would really encourage you sometime today or tomorrow, read 1 Samuel chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Sad, sad story. But God's people, and who was at fault? The story of Eli takes place in the land of Israel during the time of the judges, before they had a king. In Eli's time, he was a priest. We could say he was the head priest of the land. 
He was not just a priest, he was also the judge. He ruled the land, so to speak. He gave advice, he made uh, judgment calls and, and things that needed to be decided. He was the supreme authority of the land of his time. As a father, he had two sons that are mentioned. But during this time, the land of Israel was spiritually at a very low point. The loyalty of the people towards God was not strong. Serving alongside Eli as head priest were his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were also serving as priests. in The same place of worship as their father Eli, but there were serious problems. It says these men were very corrupt. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 reads, it says this, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They were priests. They were pastors, doing all the things that pastors do in a congregation. It makes one ask, had their father not taught them? What's going on? They were spiritual leaders, but it says they did not know God. They were pastors in the true sense of the word, but ungodly men. You see, not all pastors are men of God, not then nor now. Not all preachers are for real. Some just want a title. Some just want power. Some just want recognition. Some just want money. Some want all of it. Just because a person carries the title leader does not mean they are a leader. Slapping a title on something does not change it into something that it's not. They carry the title priests, but they were evil men. It goes on to say how these men dealt corruptly in the temple by taking from the sacrifice what did not belong to them when the people brought their offerings. It says in chapter 2, verse 17, and there's quite a long passage here, I would like you to read it sometime, it says verse 17, Thus the sinning of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. No sacredness, no regard, no reverence, no fear. It's not all that happened there. There was other things. It says in 1 Samuel 2.22, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept, and this is repeated here, he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Wow. Not just were they financially corrupt, they were morally corrupt. Immorality was happening in the house of worship. Right there at the tent of meeting, Eli's sons were the culprits. And the people told, Eli, your sons are doing this and this. What did he do? Well, let's read on verse 23. And he, Eli, said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. These two men, Hophni and Phinehas, were spiritually cold, hard, callous, and spiritually dead. Completely disregarding God's commands and their father's rebuke. I find this passage very unsettling. You see, there comes a point in time in a man's or woman's life when they've shut out God long enough when, there's, when they've crossed the point of no return and punishment is sure to come. I'm not to say where that point is, but if grace is rejected, if warnings are rejected, if rebukes are not heeded, there comes a time when the only out is consequences for their sin. And in time, a man of God came to Eli and warned Eli again, telling him, 
because you've done this, because you've lived this way, there's going to be consequences. Let's read 1 Samuel 2, verse 29. The man of God is talking to Eli, and he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? This man of God who came to Eli was rebuking him. And because Eli refused to take a stand, the man of God is saying, you're elevating your sons above me, and God is here, and his sons are there. Because he refused to draw a line, he refused to take a stand. Eli himself, he was rebuked for taking what belonged to God. Even though his sons were doing it, maybe he was doing it too, but he let it go, he let it slide, he accepted it. And the man of God continues talking to Eli, and he says in verse 34 the following words, he says, And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. What, what the man of God spoke to Eli must have been crushing for Eli. No father wants to hear from anybody, your sons will be killed. Nobody wants to hear that. And who knows, how did Eli feel? We're not told. And I'm not here by saying that if someone's children, if your children, our children walk away from God, it's always the parents' fault. But have the parents been faithful is the question. Have the parents done what was in their power or in their opportunities to do what they needed to do to point to the right path and drew the lines where they should? The parents' responsibility to warn, to correct, rebuke, encourage, affirm never stops. In Eli's case... He should have told his son simply, you can't be priests anymore. You cannot serve in the temple with what you're doing. Well, how did it play out? Not just did Eli's sons die, we'll talk about that in a minute. He himself died too, and thousands of Israelites died as well. It says on verse 3, verse 13, it says, And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. It's not just words. God wants action. First, I find it amazing. This is where God is speaking to Samuel, actually, about what God is planning to do to the house of Eli. We know God used Samuel already when he was a young boy. You see, in all of this chaos, this, 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 this uh, morass of darkness or or nonsense, or corruption was going on, there's this young boy, Samuel, and God is preparing him. God is getting him ready to be the next leader of the nation. And God did make him the leader of the nation. But it's a, it's a, it's a sign to us that no matter how dark it gets, God is always willing and ready to work with those who receive him. And Samuel was ready. And God prepared little Samuel. And I'm sometimes just, I'm just thinking as I think about this, how did Samuel become the leader after Eli was dead? Well, we're going to get to Eli's death in a bit. So yes, Samuel, Eli did confront his sons. He told them it's not good what you're doing. But it says because he didn't restrain them, that's why God's going to punish Eli. And then when Samuel has this encounter with God at night, God comes and talks to him. And in the morning, Eli says, what did the voice tell you? And little Samuel tells him everything, and that's the part where he's told that God's going to punish him. And Eli is so desensitive, so desensitized, so acclimatized to the moral culture around him. It just says in chapter 3, verse 14, it says, It is the Lord. 
Let him do what seems good to him. Oh well, that's the response of Eli. That's the response the man had to what was told to him. This is frightening. Well, the story goes on. On a given day, there was war again, as there sometimes was between the Israelites and the Philistines. Only this time, the battle was going very badly. The people of Israel, they were losing. So they made a decision that they were going to bring the Ark of the Covenant of God into battle. They thought if God's presence comes here, because that's what they believed, and that's what God had said to Moses, my presence will be in the Ark between the cherubim. And so they thought, hey, we'll bring God into the camp, to the war, then we will win. After all, we're Israelites, God will protect us. Yeah, that'll save us. Well, it did not work. Sometimes people get the idea that they can arm twist God to do their bidding, that it'll make a difference. Well, it doesn't. These people believe that if they brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle, God would be the strong guy on their side, and the Philistines would lose. Well, God is not to be trifled with. The people of Israel found that out that day in the battle. You see, it's amazing how people think because of who they are, who they know, and what they're connected to, they will be spared. It won't happen here. It won't come here. The Bible clearly teaches God is no respecter of persons. And when he's blasphemed, when he's rejected, it comes a time when consequences come. They did for Eli, his family, and for the nation of Israel. Well, the plan of Israel to bring the Ark of the Covenant to battle, actually, they lost the Ark too. They lost the war, lost the Ark. It was a dark day for the nation. God did not protect his people from their enemies. And both sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, also had gone to battle, and they were both killed, as had been prophesied to Eli, and it truly was a dark day. So the Ark of the Covenant was lost, the battle was lost, Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and as uh, the day wore on, a man from the battlefield came to Shiloh, where the tent of meeting was, and there was old Eli, sitting beside the road, and he was a blind man, he had lost his sight by that time, waiting for news from the battle. He was very old, and he was very afraid of what might have happened. The man from the battlefield told Eli the news about the battle. Israel had lost. And Hophni and Phinehas, your sons are dead. And the ark of God has been taken, he said. At the mention of the loss of the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair and broke his neck. He was an old man of 98 years, and he had ruled Israel for 40 years. As a nation, they lost the ark of the covenant. They lost their priests, Hophni and Phinehas, and their lead pastor, shepherd, Judge Eli, Judge Eli at an old age. What had happened? The reason for the calamity that had fallen upon them was because somewhere the people had lost their way and walked away from the narrow way. They had strayed. As God instructed his people in the Old Testament, do not waver to the right or to the left of the teaching of the law. They had abandoned God. They had embraced and adopted the culture, adopted the culture around them. They simply neglected to take God seriously and contributed to the moral decay. In the end, the consequences were catastrophic. And one key part of this was their leader, Eli, who had not taken action. One may well ask, why had Eli the priest not taken a stand? Why had he not told his sons, you're demoted, you can no longer serve as priests? Why had he not removed them from ministry? Why had he not dealt with the immorality, the corruption, the dishonesty, instead of just talking about it? What was it that he was afraid of? Was he afraid of the people? 
Was he afraid to lose his position? We don't know. There can be many possibilities. And we want to be careful not lay all the blame at the foot of just one person. But as a leader, he was responsible. He was, we could say, as the Bible talks about, who was stand in the gap. He was a stand in the gap guy, and he didn't. Oh, yes, he spoke about it. He, he rebuked his sons, but he didn't take action. They didn't take him seriously. He had spoken to his sons about their sin, their lifestyle, told them it's wrong what you're doing, and just let it go. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sadly, folks, that's the approach many pastors in the civilized world, in the developed world of our time, are taking. Many church leaders in many communities and political leaders in our time, they see the corruption happening, they see the sin happening. Oh, well, what can we do? It's what it is. Let it go. People do as they want. What can we say? What can we do? Never mind. Take action. When the culture is living in sin, the church of Jesus Christ is called to live out the salt and the light of the gospel. We're called to live as examples. We're called to model a Christ-like lifestyle, to walk the narrow way. When the church of Jesus Christ begins to tolerate, to embrace sin, it's an open door for moral decay to start. Once it starts, the rot has begun. It's only a matter of time before that church, unless it repents, crumbles. If repentance does not come, the decay of that church will be total. The story of Eli is a sad testimony of what happens when sin is left to grow unchecked in a faith community. So what's the story telling us today? Our world is in a free fall, on a moral decline. It's not slowing down, it's gaining momentum. We're seeing the moral decay everywhere. I just read this last week. One writer that um, I came across mentioned that in the conservative churches, the whole moral confusion agenda is now making inroads to the point where it's starting to become tolerant, tolerable and acceptable. It's from our children's education, what's deemed acceptable, to how we behave as adults, the worldview is making inroads, basically in everything. We see the erosion of the biblical worldview. It's being undermined by leaps and bounds in our time. It has been going on for a long time, but now it's like a flash flood with torrents of teachings that are tearing at everything, and one pillar of values after another is toppling under the relentless pressure. We know societies come and go. They rise and fall. But God's people should be constant. They should not be swayed by these things. God's people are called to stand strong in both hard and easy times with the gospel of grace and truth and love and hope and rebuke in all times without compromise. Jesus has promised those who build their lives on him will stand like a rock. This last week I was reading one story of persecuted believers, this one in North Korea. North Korea has connections with China and some of the news filters out from North Korea into China from there to the free world. This believer in particular mentioned how grateful they were in North Korea as believers for their faith in God, despite all the suffering that's, enduring, that's coming, that they're enduring. And he said this, he says, it's giving us a shortcut to God. They grow faster through it. I thought, that's interesting. Faith grows better in challenging times than when everything is easy and convenient. In our country for many years, we had what we called Judeo-Christian values, and they're good values, but they're disappearing fast. We don't know yet at this time what our challenges will be. And we may do well to ask, how did the early church do it? How did the early church live in a morally corrupt society and thrive as they did? 
How did they deal with all of this? Well, they were born into this, a moral corrupt society. They lived in it, grew in it, thrived in it, and expanded in it. That can be our calling and it can be our success today as well. We can do this. The church of Jesus Christ today is going through a lot of changes in this world. Some countries, the church is strong and healthy, shining like a bright star in a dark world. In other places, it's declining. There's a lot of groups call themselves Christian, but they're living like the people of Israel in Eli's day. They've left the narrow way and gone the wide road, and, oh, we're Christian. We're Christian. Except there's nothing the culture pushes they don't accept. It's all about what the culture wants. Do not rock the boat. Eli had a bit of that mentality. Oh, it's wrong what's happening, but we'll just accept it. We'll just go with it. Won't deal with it. He coasted in his life. He knew what his boys were doing. He simply warned them, and that's where he stopped. He refused to act. And the consequences were catastrophic. And he himself died a tragic death. A lot of people turn a blind eye today on what's going on. I remember years ago, I read a story of a pastor he was a conservative, a traditional pastor, and he was invited to speak at a church. He didn't know the church, and the church didn't really know him that well, but they wanted him to come and preach there. And of all the topics that he was given or that he chose to speak on, I don't know which it was, it was a topic of moral stuff, marriage, no less. The guest speaker didn't know where the church stood on these issues, and the church didn't know where the guest speaker stood on these issues. And so he preached a sermon on marriage and the permanence of it and all that stuff, and after the service was over, the home pastor of the church goes into the foyer and hunts down this guest speaker who was there, and he grabs him by the shirt collar and pushes him against the wall and says to him, you better take what you said out, out on marriage. I won't accept that. You better take that back. All angry and full of um, emotion, he says, you got to take that back. The visiting pastor was surprised, no less, and, well, but he refused. I'm not taking that back. Anyway, it turned out the home pastor of the church was on his third marriage, wife number three. He was hurt. So his toes had been stepped on. You see, a pastor like that has left the narrow path. He's in the wide path. What, Ma what Jesus describes in Matthew 7. No moral authority left to tell anybody anything about anything what he should do. He's lost all his moral authority. The Bible story of Eli and his sons fits that mold. Eli should have had some standards, some boundaries. He didn't. He just had words, no action. And it got to a point where judgment was certain, and he was not spared. In our time, we have a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus. That's where it stops. The fruit is not there. In fact, the contrary fruit is there. A lot of people like Eli and his sons refuse to take seriously the warnings of Scripture. They refuse to deal with it when they're warned. Because it's too comfortable, it's too convenient. Let's not rock the boat. Eli was rebuked for allowing his sons to serve as priests, when they're living such moral lives, he refused to take a stand. He didn't take it seriously, but God did. I remember one pastor one time telling me, he was actually not pastoring a church at the time he had, ah, oh, we're all sinners, we're all sinners. Yes, we are. But that's no escape. That means repent. We should repent and move forward and allow ourselves to be used where God wants us to be used. The New Testament has a lot of warning. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Peter writes this to the church. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If we do not take the warnings against compromise, 
seriously, then we're inviting God's judgment on our lives. I know at this point some may feel hopeless, but I want to encourage you, there is hope. I want to end on a note of hope. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, it begins this way. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always, they always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not, they shall not enter my wrath, my rest. Let's read verse 12 and on. Take care, brothers, let us there be, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. You see, folks, there is hope. God is a loving God a gracious God, a merciful God, who sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross so we do not have to pay the price of sin. Salvation is a gift for us to enjoy and to live out. But it's the road of the cross. It is a narrow road. Let's walk it faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we know You're a holy God and You call Your children to holiness. We are Your people. We're called to live for your glory. We ask you, Lord, for strength to honor you and live for you. Lord, we also know that we often fail. We ask you, Lord, to forgive us where we fail and to renew our souls and bring us back into relationship with you. We give ourselves to you, Lord. Lord, we surrender. May your spirit walk with us in this dark world. Give us strength and joy for the work and our journey. In Jesus' name we pray.